Biz News Power Hour. Welcome to you. It's the 22nd of November, Monday, of course. I'm Alec Hogg coming to you from the Biz News Studio in Johannesburg. And with me in our virtual studio today, Nadia Swart and Justin Rowe Roberts. Well, it's a big day for politics around the country, but because most of the new councils are in council, uh, we won't be able to give you too much insight on that today, but uh, don't miss our show tomorrow. We've got some fascinating uh, interviews coming up a little later. In today's show, though, we kick off with our colleagues at the Financial Times in London. They'll give you all the news that matters internationally. And then David Shapiro was having a chat, as always on a Monday, with uh, my colleague Justin Rowe Roberts. Was Mr. Shapps in form, given that he's been off in the bush for a while, Justin? Alec, always an eagerly anticipated day in the local markets with NASPIS and Process releasing results. So that's the focus of the conversation with David Shapiro. He really does unpack those results. David is a renowned growth investor. So he takes a really close look at Tencent, what's happening there in China, and NASPIS and Process results, the underlying companies and how their acquisitions and their increased stakes in food delivery have performed. See, the share prices were under a little pressure today after the release of those numbers, uh, a little worse than anticipated. Exactly. Weakness from Tencent side, although Tencent still contributes 118% of their operating profit, which means that the rest of the businesses, which are now valued at around 50 billion US dollars, are still making quite significant losses, which is the primary concern coming out of these results. Valued by management at $50 billion, valued by the market at minus maybe 50 or even more. Isn't it strange that, that you're buying NASPERS shares for cheaper than the value alone of their 10 cent shares. And it doesn't seem as though management's making much progress on getting that discount narrowed. Exactly. David expects this discount to remain. And if you do want exposure into China, into the possible growth there, despite the concerns, he says rather invest directly in 10 cent because this discount is going nowhere slowly. So there's a good story that uh, Justin has been busy with that you'll be getting on our program later. Also tonight, Justin, you spoke with Andre Salia about the RAND. This is also every two weeks we uh, we pick it up with him from Treasury One. And what's he looking at now, given that the RAND recently has been trading above 15 to the US dollar? Very interesting, given that the South African Reserve Bank hiked interest rates. Normally, this would be good because now there's more yield in the South African currencies relative to other currencies. But we've seen weakness in the RAND, and Andre explains this. There's a lot of financial jargon, but he does break it down into little tiny nitbits, um, which can be consumed easily by any listener. I love that when you get somebody who actually understands the complexities and then can share with the rest of us what it means in everyday language. Nadia, we will be hearing a little later from our new colleague, Jeremy Maggs, Mr. Media in South Africa, and he had an interview with Arne Rist. Now, I know you've listened to it already. Uh, what is your take on this? It's, and you know, who is Arne? And I know you were a little disturbed. <laughs> I was interview. disturbed. And that's the thing. I mean, it takes a lot to like shock me, but he's the brand manager for Carling Black Label. And they have a new campaign against GBV where GBV? they uh, gender-based violence. And they partnered with a top designer to design a wedding dress that's not flammable with a design piece over the neck so that the throat, the throat can't be slit. It's utterly shocking because one in three women statistically will be affected by GBV. In South Africa? In South Africa. Are we still amongst the worst in the world? Charlize Theron uh, has been very outspoken on this subject, and I think she was a, a, a series of adverts in yeah, well, when you're shaming considering South African history. men. Yeah. Um, I think that we are, and apparently it has gotten worse with lockdown, but the, the interesting part of this conversation is the fact that um, – Arne Rist says that it's not alcohol that's responsible for GBV. It's a problem with masculinity, and that needs to be fixed and addressed. 
Yeah, I I wonder um, how many people are going to actually buy that because when you drink, your inhibitions go out the window, Completely, and if you yeah. you have that propensity, perhaps that releases you. But I, I guess he's he's more of an expert. But it is it's a business story uh, on a brand, and as Jeremy said to him, this is good. It's, it's pushing risky. the envelope it's very quite risky. a bit. Yeah. But uh, anything to do with marketing and media, Jeremy Maggs is your man, and we're delighted to have him as, as a member of our team. And then another member of our team spoke uh, with Professor Lee Berger. Now, I, I recall meeting him some years ago, an extraordinary asset for South Africa, originally from North America, and they have uncovered new uh, anthropological findings uh, in South Africa. Uh, Lee Berger is with the Witts University. And that's a heck of a story. I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to it yet, Nadia. I haven't. Uh, I browsed through the content and it's apparently, yeah, it's, it's put South Africa back on the archaeological map. So a child skull found at the cradle of humankind. Yeah, it's quite a story. And we, we uh, I urge you to stay with the program right through until the end because you will find that not only informative, but once again, uh, a fascinating uh, world leader in his field who happens to be a uh, a South African actually he's uh, he came to this country many years ago and he's 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 one of us if you like but we lots of other things happening in South Africa uh, before we go even more deeply into the rest of the program let's pick up on the markets Rightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different the daily movement in the markets means change for us all sometimes small sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Nadia Swat, as always, has our news headlines. Nadia? A clearer picture of who will be in charge in South Africa's major metros is starting to form. However, agreements and coalitions remain shaky. The ANC is looking like the prime party in regions like Ekuruleni and Etequini, while the DA looks set to take control of Tshwane. Uncertainty still lingers around Johannesburg. While the bigger parties have entered into coalition agreements with smaller parties, things remain volatile, particularly where demands from smaller parties are not being met. For example, the DA not supporting Action SA's bid for mayorship in Johannesburg could see the coalition in Shwane collapse. On Monday, National SAPS Commissioner General Kehla Sitole conceded that police were overstretched and did not have enough capacity to deal with the July unrest in KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng. Giving testimony at the South African Human Rights Commission's national hearings into the July unrest, Setole said, we did not have enough capacity to respond. The other main cause was the nature of the modus operandi used. SAPS was so overstretched in such a manner that the current establishment could not be everywhere at the same time. He added that if the police had more members, they would have responded to their unrest in a better way. The unrest left more than 340 people dead and dented the economy by 50 billion rand. The Department of Health plans to roll out further upgrades to South Africa's COVID-19 certificate, but there are limitations on how the certificate can be used abroad. The department's acting director general, Dr. Nicholas Crisp, told ENCA that the certificate is being rolled out in three phases. A pilot phase, a verifiable phase using a QR code, and an international phase that will introduce crypto security and allow the certificate to be used overseas. Crisp said the certificate is currently designed to allow access to events in South Africa, including sports, restaurants and workplaces, and that it will be some time before these features are available abroad. This means SA's vaccine certificate cannot be read internationally, with international COVID-19 vaccine certificates also not readable locally. And now to my colleague Justin for the markets. Thanks, Nards. The JSEL share index is up at 70,700. In the currency markets, the rand is weaker against all the major currencies to 15 rand 75 cents to the dollar, 21 rand 18 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 76 cents to the euro. Gold is lower, trading at $1,841 an ounce. A Kruger rand will cost you around 30,000 rand. Brent crude is trading at $79 a barrel, and Bitcoin is lower, around the 900,000 rand level. In the financial news, Process, NASPIS's global internet arm, says revenue rose almost a third in its half year to end September, boosted by an improved performance from its e-commerce unit. 
Group revenue measured on an economic interest basis grew 31% to $16.6 billion to end September, with the group's e-commerce segment revenue accelerating 60% to $4.2 billion. This segment comprises businesses engaged in food delivery, online payments, classifieds, and educational software. With Process saying on Monday, the value of the portfolio is approaching $50 billion US dollars from $13 billion US dollars five years ago. Food delivery's performance remains strong as it expands into grocery deliveries, Process said, while classifiers emerge stronger from the pandemic. This daily market report was made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Monday, November 22nd, and this is your FT News Briefing. Saudi Arabia has a plan to build up its own military industry. One of the most famous sports partnerships is on the rocks. Plus, commercial space activity is growing, but no one's overseeing what's going on up there. Space is a big place, but we have plans to send up so many satellites that it's increasingly becoming congested. Our international business editor, Peggy Hollinger, will talk about a big threat to all those satellites in orbit. I'm Joanna Gao, in for Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Saudi Arabia spent nearly $60 billion on defense last year, by one estimate. Almost all of that was on imported weaponry. Now Riyadh wants to build up its own military industry. The goal is to increase local production to 50% of defense spending within a decade. That fits with Crown Prince Mohammed's plan to diversify the Saudi economy away from oil. He also wants to make the country more self-reliant. A company set up by the government last year recently invested in a factory in Riyadh that makes parts for bombs and drones. The government also wants arms manufacturers like Lockheed Martin to move production and maintenance to the kingdom. For tens of millions of people around the world, the name FIFA doesn't mean soccer's governing body. It's a video game. FIFA's licensing deal with video game maker Electronic Arts has been one of the most mutually beneficial relationships in sports. But the partners are on the verge of breaking up. FT Sports editor Murad Ahmed has more. So there was a renegotiation over the name. FIFA wanted a lot more money to use its name in the video game. Electronic Arts, first of all, didn't want to pay more money, but also didn't want to be limited in how it could use the name and how it could expand the franchise. It wants to move into things like non-fungible tokens, this kind of digital memorabilia. It wants to launch esports tournaments and lots of other ways to use this brand. And FIFA didn't want to have this kind of expansive use of its name. So that's the heart of the battle. The other thing that happened is that EA did its own internal analysis and effectively decided that the game is more important than the name and that the gamers would stick with it. And that's the bet it's taking. Electronic Arts has even prepared for life after FIFA by trademarking a new name for a soccer video game. And FIFA's negotiation tactic may have gone awry. I think from all the people I've spoken to, FIFA didn't quite understand what it was getting into when it asked for more money. Um, I think uh, potentially there was a bit of arrogance on their part that the huge growth of the game would naturally mean more going towards them. But for EA's perspective, I think what they have with other games like the Madden um, NFL franchise in the States and other games is that usually governing bodies can bring a lot to the table once you do a deal with them. Not only the name, they can bring all the teams and lots of other things that are valuable to the company. In FIFA's case, they can't actually do that. They can bring the name and they can bring rights to uh, the World Cup, but they don't have the rights over the biggest leagues in the world, the biggest clubs in the world, the biggest players in the world. So EA started to do a calculation. How much is this deal with FIFA worth? And is it really going to damage the game? And they decided, first of all, it's not worth a lot load more money than they currently pay. And secondly, it may not even damage the game at all. Murad Ahmed is the FT's sports editor. Russia blew up one of its old defunct satellites last week. It was a deliberate destruction, and the satellite exploded into countless fragments. 
U.S. Space Command said it could identify about 1,500 fragments, but there are likely hundreds of thousands of smaller pieces now spinning around the Earth at 25,000 kilometers an hour, all in an uncontrolled fashion. So they can go out of the existing orbit that that satellite was in, and they can go higher or lower in the orbits above the Earth, and therefore present a real danger to other satellites that are out there. That's Peggy Hollinger, our international business editor. She's been looking into the pollution caused by all the activity going on in space, not just military, but commercial as well. And it's largely unregulated. She joined me to talk more about this. How big of a threat is this? It's a huge threat. The French are estimating that as a result of what the Russians have done, the chances of something called a Kessler syndrome have increased by about 5%. And the Kessler syndrome is where you have fragments traveling around the Earth in a random fashion. They're not following set trajectories, so they can go into higher orbits or lower orbits. They go where they will. And if they hit another satellite, and if they do enough damage, they either create more fragments by blowing up a part of that satellite or or damaging that satellite, which then add to the sum total of space debris that then themselves start traveling in a random fashion. And you might have even more fragments, which means there's a greater risk of hitting even more satellites. It's a chain reaction. And the problem then is that you have lots of satellites up there in orbit that are delivering vital security information to us, communications. We're relying on satellites more and more for Earth observations, also for mobility as we look at autonomous driving, etc. So it's a real threat. So how urgent is this problem? It's a very serious problem. Space is a big place, but we have plans to send up so many satellites that it's increasingly becoming congested. And part of the problem is that in this part of the orbit, which is low Earth orbit, anything up to 2,000 kilometers, that's the sweet spot, if you like, for a lot of new types of communication. Everybody wants to go there because we can all see there's a possibility of creating new businesses and creating a new kind of economy, a new frontier for economic potential potential in in low Earth orbit. So everybody wants to go up there. Recently, Rwanda applied to launch 300,000 satellites. Kepler, a Canadian satellite company, recently got approval for more than 117,000 satellites, I believe. You just look at the scale and pace at which we're launching or or intending to launch satellites. There are ambitions to launch more satellites into low Earth orbit than there is plans to actually bring these satellites down, the older defunct satellites down. So you're increasingly crowding space. And part of the problem is the more satellites you have up there, the more the risk of collision. So we really have to get to grips with this before we're at a stage where there's no turning back and before we lock off space to any future launches. So what's being done right now to get this under control? Well, everyone knows that space debris is a problem. There have been over many years many, many attempts to try and agree some sort of uh, rules and regulations for what we put up in space. And they, they constantly run up against both geopolitics, you know, whatever the Chinese want to do, the Americans don't want to do, whatever the Americans want to do, the Chinese and Russians don't want to do. And everybody's proving a point. And then on top of that, with this new gold rush for low Earth orbit, every country wants to have a slice of that. So every country basically wants to shoot up as many satellites or give as much permission for satellites as they can before we start imposing new rules. And there's no uh, real traffic control system for where these satellites are placed. Each member state is responsible for the regulation of their own industry. And, and ultimately, everyone's reluctant to pool the power and, and the control. And what I find quite surprising is, you know, we we know we can do this. We've done this in the civil aviation sphere because we know that we want to keep people safe because aviation is hugely important for the global economy. We should be thinking about the same thing for space. And we should be thinking about it in particular right now because we can see what we've done on planet Earth with, you know, a rush to industrialization and using all our resources and 
production systems without thinking about the impact. And now we're paying the price of that. And we're at risk of doing exactly the same thing in orbit that we've done here on Earth. And I can tell you, the cost will be substantially higher if we wait for everybody to grab their slice and do whatever they want. The cost of rectifying the consequences will be far higher than if we decided to deal with this now. Peggy Hollinger is the FT's international business editor. Thanks, Peggy. Thank you, Joanna. Before we go, there's been a massive global migration of cryptocurrency mining machines. If you recall earlier this year, China banned cryptocurrency mining in the country, and mining companies had to move their gear out. It was an exodus of more than 2 million of these clunky, power-guzzling machines. The Financial Times gathered data on where they ended up. Most landed in the U.S., Canada, Kazakhstan, and Russia. But so many machines were relocated, there wasn't enough room. Some found homes in small countries with cheap power, like Venezuela. Others are still stuck in ports. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. I'm Joshua Roberts of BizNews, and with me for today's Market Insights is Sassfin Securities David Shapiro. Naspers and Process out with results today, eagerly anticipated. What stood out most for you in the numbers? You know, I like to break down the divisions, and I like to look at contributions. And uh, eventually, you know, that's the first place I go to is the segmental breakdown to see what, where, how much money they're making out of the acquisitions and, and who contributes. And uh, when you look at it, you come down to the raw detail, it's still Tencent that makes up about 118% of the operating profit. So it means that all the other divisions are still taking away 18%. Uh, so just to where I'm getting it, it's going to take a long time before those other businesses and the acquisitions that they make begin to shift the needle. You know, they might be in the right direction. They could be working there. But uh, the numbers from Tencent are just so huge, it's going to take a a big, big chunk. And remember, they sold 2%. So they took all this cash, brought in other other acquisitions, uh, and and therefore we haven't even adjusted for that. So I think it's uh, it's going to take a long time. So no matter how we spin the tail, uh, it's still Tencent that's going to dictate whether this company makes money or not or what the profits look like. So, yeah, they're trying, but the shares, you know, the shares, uh, both Process and Aspis, because of Tencent's non-performance, have been uh, have been drags on the JSE uh, this year, you know, continue to be in negative uh, at a time where everything else seems to be performing. But that's, um, you know, I, we, we, everything else is just, uh, is, is bumbling along, doing well, um, I think they've got some very good businesses underneath on that, but we keep asking our question, you know, keep asking the same question: uh, When are these going to be big enough to make a, a big difference? As you said, David, there's been a lot of pressure on the Nasdaq and Process share price as a result of Tencent coming under scrutiny from Chinese government regulation in the last six months or so. But you seem to be insinuating that Tencent's underlying performance within the stable was still very strong. It's still strong, you know. Um, up 20, 20, 30%, whatever it is. I can't remember the exact detail. I think up 24% on revenue. I'm not quite sure in uh, in profit. So it's still a pretty good underlying uh, performance. We can't ignore uh, Tencent as a business. I know it's been under scrutiny. And, um, you know, even when I went through the Tencent results, uh, they seemed to be very restrained in the way they looked forward, you know, very nervous of offending perhaps the Chinese authorities, but they continue to grow the business. And I still think there's quite a bit of opportunity for Tencent to grow. I prefer it to Alibaba, you know, and I still prefer it to, to maybe some of the other companies, tech companies within, uh, you know, within China. Um, but uh, I, I think they're being held back by, by those regulatory, you know, by the regulatory crackdown, particularly uh, on the gaming side, I think that's you know that's 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 hurt them, and also of course monetizing um, the, the the opportunities. You know, it's uh, they're very nervous to go out 
and advertise and, and monetize what they can do. But I think over time that will start to pick up. So I've turned more in favor of, of, of Tencent than perhaps Alibaba, but it still dictates where um, mass person process will, you know, will trade. What's your patience threshold like for Bob van Dyke and the rest of the management team? There's been a number of capital allocation mishaps. We think about the share buybacks and some of the acquisitions that just haven't been able to hit the ground running, as you mentioned earlier. Do you think he's the right man for the job? Well, you know, one's got to give him a chance. I can't really criticize him from that point of view because I don't know what's out there. You know what I mean? We don't know what, what businesses are out there and, and what his policy is. He seems to identify where he wants to go and we listen and we, we read the commentary. But when we look at the sheer numbers, I think it's going to take a long time. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing there that stood up and smacked me in the face and said, boy, this is growing. You know, this is really looking solid. It just seems to be little bits all over the place with a hope that uh, your lucky number comes up. And, and something strikes. But I don't think any of the businesses that I've seen are going to match the kind of uh, position that, 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 that Tencent has. And, uh, you know, I, I, hopefully there, there's some better analysts out there who can give you, um, you know, more detail to it. But uh, I like, you know, I'm a numbers man. And I've got them in front of me here. And it's like, okay, yeah, that's okay. It's picking up year by year, but it is picking up because they sold Tencent and they're putting all this money in. So, you know, they're still, they're still going to take some time before they start to make profits in those, all those businesses. And those businesses start to contribute real cash at the moment. Um, you know, they're eating up the cash. But, but give him a chance. You know, um, I, I, I still, I, I'm not going to be convinced at this stage, but uh, hopefully down the line, something does swing in his favor and he's able to, uh, uh, you know, prove his worth and you know, prove that, okay, he was right, we were wrong. To continue on the theme of this conversation, there's been increased focus on NASPAS Stable's non-Tencent portfolio. It's growing. There's been a number of acquisition and increased stakes in other investments during the period. Revenues grew strongly around 53%, but the operating loss widened. What's your take as a whole on the non-Tencent portfolio? A lot of money goes into these businesses, and it takes a long time before they, they start to contribute. But eventually, they've got to contribute. You know, you want to see the numbers coming through. You know, food delivery, everybody talks about it. Uh, it's, it's a great business. But uh, it's, you know, it's, and, and hopefully they can, they can utilize food delivery for other services. I'm waiting. You know, I'm not, I, and, and in, a, in a broader sense, without just focusing on nice bits, you know, I, I like the big ones. I just say, hold on, you know, I'm going to stay with those, that are the platforms, uh, the big enablers, I'm going to stay with them rather than trying to find something uh, underneath it that's going to shoot the lights out. You know, I like to see money and I like to buy companies that are making money, you know. So, yeah, I don't, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think where, where uh, you know, where, what, what really stands out. You know, Classifieds is doing okay. They've been in there for a long time. You know, it's not, that's not a new business. That's a couple of years already. And it's still very, very small business. It's not really making big contributions uh, uh, you know, uh, to the bottom line. So where's classified going to go to? How big is it going to get to? Is it going to double, treble? I can't see that. So everything's got to move in line. All those new acquisitions have to move in line, uh, like you know, line the stars for for and uh, you know for, for some some explosion to happen to challenge Tencent. Management seem to have a high conviction on India as an investment jurisdiction. Is India the new China? <laughs> you know, I look at India all the time. <laughs> Just, it's so fragmented, so difficult. It is, it's, you know, a billion people, well-educated, you know, despite the fact that it might appear poverty, it's not. A very, very well-educated people there. But uh, you can't, you know, you can't seem to, to, to get a handle on anything. There's no one company that kind of dominates. I know there are some very large businesses in India, but I, I, I can't, you know, if you had to say to me, find one Indian investment to, to go into, I'd say, I don't know. I, you know, hopefully they can make it there. You know, hopefully they can get something there 
that 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 uh, you know does make a, a difference. I think they'll be the only business that has done that. But um, it's it's not um, you know it's it's not an easy territory in which to kind of gain a foothold simply because of uh, it's I think historically it's been fragmented. So you know that, that that's that's how the British were able to rule for so long because it was so fragmented. So I I I I'm a bit skeptical on on India. I know the big big economy growing nicely, but I, I say skeptical from an investment point of view. Very difficult to find something. What's your ideal way in order to gain exposure to Tencent? Is that an investment directly in Tencent or going the investment holding route through NASPAS and Process, which we've seen hasn't bared any fruit over the last few years? Yeah, I go Tencent. I go direct. I look. Sometimes we trapped here in South Africa. Sometimes the money is trapped here. We stay with our Process NASPAS, and hopefully things will start to come right this year because we had. You know, I'm talking about China starting to stabilize and uh, um, ease up a bit, yeah. But um, if it came to, if I had the money, uh, I, I'm not going to play the discount. I think that discount can remain, and we've seen that it's not closing at any you know, dramatic pace. So my, I would still go, I would still go direct. So lockdowns, alcohol bans, who on earth would want to market a beer these days? And particularly tough when it's Africa's biggest selling beer brand. I want to introduce you to Arne Rust, who manages AB InBev's Carling Black Label brand. Arne, a very warm welcome to you. Let's start with this. Just how big is Carling in Africa? Well, Jeremy, Carling is is by far the biggest beer brand in in Africa. And to give you an idea, uh, we're almost twice the size of um, the next biggest one, and we sell about 70 million units a month. So that's a significant uh, scale, no matter how you look at it. And what it's, do you, it's what do you think you're doing right? I mean, why, why is it so No, bad? I mean, the, the thing that we're doing right is this liquid is just spectacular. Uh, if we do blind tastings, uh, about 9 out of 10 people choose Carling Black Label. So why wouldn't it be the biggest beer brand? So it's been tough, though, I would imagine, over lockdown and the alcohol brands. So let me ask you this. What do you think has given you a marketing edge? And how does a beer remain relevant, given the amount of choice that the consumer has right now? I think those are those are very pertinent questions, even for beyond beer. I think for, for any consumer goods, for any any business at the at the moment, because what we've seen in our in our experience over the last year is that the people who've gone backwards are the people who sat on their hands, the people who didn't do anything, the people who use the lockdown as an excuse to drop all of those marketing funds to the bottom line, who went, oh, no, we didn't know. We don't know what's going to happen. There's so much uncertainty. We're just going to stop planning altogether. Um, where we've seen what we did is by leaning into that uncertainty, by then going out and doing things, things that made us definitely uncomfortable, making a hand sanitizer instead of um, castle lager was, was one of the things that we did. And what that does is it not only keeps you on your toes, but it keeps you top of mind. And I think that answers to, to some extent your second question is what, what should brands, you know, or what should companies do in these spaces is they should be clear about what their purpose is. And a brand who is just there, who's just a product, is going to become a commodity. If you don't have a purpose, if you don't have a role in society, and if you're not clear about what that role is, then you're going to get lost when the times get tough. How does a brand do that? How do you not only define your purpose, but also live up to that purpose? Because we also live in a very cynical society where you can be called out if you're not completely authentic. Absolutely. And, and I think right, rightfully so. Um, the power has definitely gone to the people way more than it, than it has ever, ever in the past. I think the first thing that any company or any brand has to be very clear of is what is their archetype? Who are you? Who are you as a brand, as a person? Because when you start using multiple voices and coming from different places, you come across as a bit of a schizophrenic. And we've seen brands or companies where when you don't know who the ad is, you're like, yeah, these guys have no idea who they are. Mm. And once you've made that call, you have to stick to it. You have to be consistent. So if I look at the the campaigns of ours that have been successful over the last 10, 15 years, um, something like No Excuse, which is our um, platform, our initiative against gender violence that Carling Black Label um, runs. When you enter a space like that, 
you better know that some people are going to be asking some tough questions. Why is a beer brand talking about domestic violence? And the only way that you can then overcome those reservations is by being there, sticking to your guns, making a real difference, and over time not changing your lane. So we've been with this now since 2017, and we're going to keep banging this drum until we've solved this to a point where it's no longer an issue. It's a very successful campaign, but let me suggest to you that it's also a risky campaign because I could very well turn around to you and say that alcohol in many cases is responsible for domestic violence. Jeremy, I think in that case you'd be wrong. Um, I don't think that alcohol is responsible for domestic violence. We are not naive to say that alcohol doesn't play a role in that situation, which is why we feel like we need to lean into the conversation to be a part of the solution Mm. rather than be a part of the problem. But what at the root cause of uh, gender violence is bad men. Or if I can say that differently, wounded men, broken men, the, the masculinity that they should be bringing to a relationship, the strength that they should be bringing to a relationship is, is getting warped. And it's for many different reasons, right? Maybe you didn't make the team. Maybe you feel like you're not enough. Maybe you didn't get the job. Maybe you don't like your car you're driving. Maybe you didn't even get the interview. Mm-hmm. And all of these things then make men, you know, they feel powerless. And once a guy feels powerless, one of two things happens. The first one is they internalize that pain. And then they start imploding, imploding because we, we suck at talking about our feelings, right? As guys, it's not something that we learn. Boys don't cry. We don't talk about when we're feeling vulnerable. And that is why the male suicide stat is 400% higher than the, than the female, um, female statistic. That's the internalization. Or they take this woundedness, they take this powerlessness, and they try and project power onto the world. And that's when you see things like gender violence. That's when they try and do things just to... to try and convince themselves that they still have a little bit of a semblance of power. And what we're saying is that we need to go and fix masculinity to fix gender violence. Part of the new incarnation of this campaign is a wedding dress. What's that about? Jimmy, it's, it's fresh, fresh off the press. It's called the bridal armor. And what it is, is one out of three women globally will experience abuse at the hands of their intimate partners. So it's by far the single largest um, sector contributing to gender violence. And that is so starkly contrasted by being in a relationship where this person is supposed to be your partner. They're supposed to be the one who walks with you on this journey. right? And those two things living in the same world just makes no sense to us. So what we did is we've, we've made a wedding dress. We worked with a renowned uh, fashion designer Suzanne Haynes, um, and we made a wedding dress with a twist, a dress that we wish we never had to make, because this dress is informed by the real stories of survivors of abuse from Lifeline, uh, who are an NGO that we that we partner with to help uh, the, the survivors of, of abuse. And we've taken these stories, these real-life stories, and built them into the dress. To give you an example, we've got a neck covering on this wedding dress that, when you look at it quickly, it just looks like a pretty strange uh, wedding dress but it's there to stop the throat from being cut. We have Kevlar lining in the bodice to stop a bullet. Um, There are parts of the train that are flame retardant so that she cannot be set on fire. And all of these stories are hand-woven into this 80-plus meters of material that have gone into the dress. And far from it being just a, a, a spotlight on the sadness of the situation, we want to ask people to come make a difference. We want to change the wedding bars. We are asking the Department of Home Affairs to amend the vows they currently have as their standard vows um, at their department to include an acknowledgement of abuse. For us to say that I will love, cherish and never abuse you as a groom to the bride. It's a powerful and audacious goal and it's a compelling campaign. And I sincerely hope, uh, given the scourge of gender violence that we have in this country, that it is successful Calling Black Label, Arne Russ, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Jeremy. How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why... South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. 
Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. This currency focus is proudly brought to you by Treasury One, South Africa's leading treasury solutions company that unlocks financial value for your business. I'm Joshua Roberts of Biz News, and with me for today's currency focus is Treasury One's Andre Salias. Andre, there's been some big moves in the RAND recently. It's weakened dramatically despite the South African Reserve Bank hiking rates, which is a bit counterintuitive. Can you explain what's happening? Yeah, yeah. good afternoon. Yeah, interesting times. Uh, we expected the RAND uh, to appreciate a little bit after the announcement of the interest rate increase, and we've just seen the opposite. Um, now, when you look at the speech of Mr. Kanyahu after the announcement or during the announcement, uh, he was quite uh, concerned about inflation going forward um, and, and the upside risks to inflation going forward. And, and I think for that reason, uh, if you look at the expectations of inflation and you look at inflation in the rest of the world and then his whole discussion surrounding inflation, I think the market kind of expected that he would be a little bit more aggressive uh, in his approach to his monetary policy and the fighting of inflation, uh, and then hence increasing interest rates a little bit more, uh, which was not done, and I think that was a slight disappointment. However, on the same day, we had also seen that the Hungarian Central Bank had raised interest rates by 70 basis points. And then you take into account quite a negative outlook on on, on inflation on the short term. You look at oil prices, you look at the the RAND, you look at fuel prices that could contribute further to inflation. Uh, And I think that all just in throwing into the pot was a little bit negative. Andre, there's so much financial jargon. Could you just break it down for us? How or why does interest rates affect the value of a currency relative to another currency? Okay, um, it's quite simple and quite easy. Uh, The economics behind a higher interest rate is simply that if you raise your interest rates, then investors with surplus funds looking to invest money uh, would rather invest in at a higher rate than at lower rates. Hence, if interest rates increase, uh, there could possibly be an inflow of money into the country, an inflow of money into the country to invest at that higher rate would simply mean that that currency needs to be sold uh, to obtain rands, to invest the rands at the higher rate, and that inflow of currency would be positive for the currency. A few weeks ago, we spoke about the Turkish lira adding some flavor to the rand. I think we named it Turkish Delight, or you did rather. The lira continues to be in free fall as inflation runs hot in Turkey and the central bank continues to cut rates, which isn't how you deal with inflation running hot by the economics textbook. Is this having an effect on other emerging market currencies such as the rand? I am not going to say that the Turkish decision to lower interest rates had such a dry, direct impact. I think the direct impact comes more from what happens in the U.S. Uh, with their inflation rate having come out uh, at 6%, um, which is very high, and it's stubbornly there. The inflation's not going away. And um, I'm quite willing to say that the factors uh, contributing to that high inflation is not subsiding. And what the Federal Reserve is going to do Uh, regarding their interest rates. Now, that's an interesting one uh, because, you know, there's no point in raising your interest rates by 25 basis points uh, because that's not going to stop inflation. Uh, You can also not raise your interest rates by 4 or 5% in one go because that would stop the economy dead in its tracks. Um, So uh, I think that's more of a focus point as to what is the Fed going to do uh, and then also what happens at the moment uh, is out of the European side, we're seeing quite a dramatic increase of COVID cases. Um, we've seen an oil price reacting to that quite negatively uh, because that spells out that there could be possibly lower demand. And I think those factors is more important uh, than what happens in Turkey at the moment. 
Yes, it does have a small impact, but I think that's taking a bit of a backseat. As you say, inflation running hot in the U.S., the U.S. Fed is only expected to raise interest rates sometime during 2022, probably towards the end, if not 2023, given the weakening of the RAND despite the South African Reserve Bank raising rates. Is the outlook for the RAND positive when developed economies start to put the lid on rates and we see Jerome Powell raising interest rates in the U.S.? If they put a lid on the raising of interest rates and they come out with a clear, clear, clear indication and Mr. Powell makes another press announcement and during the, after the Federal Reserve next meeting during that press conference clearly states that they will not raise interest rates, that they will not bring the date forward, I do think that that will be uh, a positive effect on the positiveness of or the positive side of the RAND, and I think we could see the RAND strengthening a little bit then again. Uh, I also think that towards the year end, we could see some inflows uh, as positions are being cleared over the year end uh, with people of a financial year end over December. I think that could add to positiveness. Um, so, yes, I do think that the RAND will hold uh, its, its weakening pace a little bit, but it's all in the hands of the Federal Reserve. Uh, that's really the crucial one at this point in time. And what I've said this morning is, you know, when people are really, really uncertain as to what happens in the world, you take your money and you go and invest it in something that looks safe and then is being perceived as safe. Uh, and those three things at this point in time seems to be gold, it seems to be the crypto world, and keeping dollars rather than anything else. And I think for a while we're going to live with that. That uncertainty as to what happens around this whole debate, debate uh, leads us to keep something that at least gives you a little bit of certainty and safety. So are you insinuating that one should stay away from emerging market currencies, at least for now, whilst the future is so uncertain? If a foreign investor outside of emerging markets, a first world investor, speaks to me today and asks me for my advice, that would certainly be uh, not to stay away completely, but to trade very, very cautiously. And if you then do want to put money in, do not jump in all at once, but jump in at tranches and wait for a little bit more clarity uh, as to what happens out there. Andre, after this sh short-term shock in the RAND, what are the technicals telling us where we're headed in the next few weeks as the year draws to a close? Well, technically, we're overrated. Uh, the technicals tells me that uh, 1580, 1583 is, is fairly strong levels. It tells me that 112.50, 112.48 area on the euro, very strong technical levels. If it breaks through those levels, uh, then below a sub 112 on the euro is on the cards and uh, a break or a test of the 16 levels on the RAND is on the cards. So we're trading close to very technical levels at this point in time. I'm of the opinion it will hold, not go through, uh, but it is uh, significant levels that if it breaks through, you could see a bit of a run. Any other interesting developments in the Forex market other than the Rand dollar? I mean, we tend to focus on that for obvious reasons, but are there any other interesting developments happening around the world? I think generally, if you look at the central banks around the world, uh, uh, New Zealand, etc. We've spoken about uh, Hungary and so forth. If you look at central banks around the world, they are in a tightening phase on the monetary policy side. Uh, it's been very relaxed over the COVID period. So watch that space. That's a very, very important space. But uh, And I think a whole discussion through this uh, uh, afternoon has been surrounding the Federal Reserve. They still hold the key. Uh, but in the run-up to what they do, we can foresee that other central banks will keep on tightening. But that's really the key focus. It's, it's a very interesting time uh, and period because interest rates and inflation is so far apart. 
that we sit with high inflation, low interest rates, uh, I want to almost say overvalued stock exchanges, very expensive stock exchanges throughout the world. Um, and you would expect that if interest rates, if the expectancy is that interest rates is going to increase uh, quite dramatically over the next uh, couple of months and years, that that would have a negative effect on uh, the stock exchanges, which is something that we're still not seeing. You know, so we are in a very, very interesting space. Uh, I want to call it after the COVID period and the pandemic period and the lockdowns in a very peculiar space. Uh, a space that we've not really seen before uh, and, and all the much reason uh, to tread cautiously during these periods. This currency focus was proudly brought to you by Treasury One, South Africa's leading treasury solutions company that unlocks financial value for your business. This interview is brought to you by First Rand. I'm going up until the covers news. The first partial skull of a child of Homo naledi has been found in the Rising Star Caves in South Africa. It follows the discovery of a previously unidentified hominin species named Homo naledi by the team in 2013, which shook up our understanding of the early human origins. Leading the team is Professor Lee Berger, the man being charted around the world as having discovered this entirely new species of hominid in the cradle of humankind. Joining me now is Professor Berger. Can you tell us how you got this latest breakthrough? I discovered Homo naledi back in 2013 when I sent teams of both uh, students and amateur cavers into a series of caves that I'd mapped back in 2008 with Google Earth. And that mapping system had resulted in the discovery of Australopithecus sediba. But I hadn't been underground into the systems. And that was what the exercise was about. And remarkably, very shortly into that work, my teams found the remains of ancient hominids lying on the floor of a cave, some 150 meters back in, 40 meters underground, in a situation that that no one had ever seen before in the search for human origins. Literally, these primitive ancient hominids lying on the floor of the cave. We built an expedition called the Rising Star Expedition. That's what the cave uh, complex was called. Actually, a very well-known cave complex. And uh, immediately realized we discovered something extraordinary. By the end of the expedition, four weeks later, we discovered the largest assemblage of ancient human relatives in the history of the search for human origins on the continent of Africa. Over 1,500 remains, almost two dozen individuals. That work has continued, and after two years, we named a new species, Homo naledi. It became one of the largest science projects in the world. And this species was hugely enigmatic. It was, it was really strange. It had a tiny head about a third to a quarter of the size of a human, ape-like shoulders, but it walked on two legs with a sort of very advanced body. And it looked like a combination of things, like some of the earliest ancestors like Homo habilis, maybe mixed with some Homo erectus and a little bit of human thrown in there. But we didn't have a date for it because the situation was very difficult to date. And so we would only uh, invent technology, literally, to date it two years later after that. And we found out that not only was this a strange-looking species, but it was out of time and out of place. Because our geochronologists dated uh, those remains between 230 and 330,000 years ago. That sounds like a long time, but that type of primitive hominid shouldn't have existed at that time. In fact, we thought only Homo sapiens existed on the continent of Africa at that time. And our explorations continued. And in September of 2017, our teams pushed beyond the Dinaledi chamber into the most difficult places to access in this cave. And for anyone who's ever seen images of our, our working in these caves, just to get to the Dinaledi chamber requires some of the most extraordinary efforts by cavers ever, going down 12-meter slots that are 16 centimeters wide, crawling through very dangerous passages. Well, the area that we move beyond that is worse than that. It's a network, a spider web, really, of narrow passages, most of which are only about 15 centimeters wide. And it was in one of these in 2017 that our teams discovered 
the fragmentary remains of a skull sitting on a little ledge 80 centimeters above the floor. That's the skull. That's the thing that we've announced recently. The little skull that we was a child, four to six years old, dating to, we believe, about the same time as all the other Homo naledi remains. And it's just the skull. It's the only thing sitting there. Now, skulls of children of any of these ancient human relatives are incredibly rare. People have often said that these these fossils are the rarest sought-after objects on the planet. But if the adults are that, the children are 10 or 20 times as rare. Why is that? Mostly just they're found with isolated teeth because the bones are so fragile. But an interesting case with this child, which we call Letty, by the way, which is short for Letamella or the lost one, is that there are no bones with her other than just this skull. It appears as if someone placed her skull on this little ledge 250,000 years ago. That adds to the mystery beyond the value of her skull, learning about development and growth in, in hormonality. Well, the story is incredible. So you said it's a small child and you know it's a female and she's used to walk upright. Do you think this theory of yours that it might have been a burial ground, does that need more exploration? So let me correct a couple of things. We don't know it's a female. I just use that term. This is the first time we had a, the, both the skull and dentition of a child. We found isolated dental remains and some other jaw fragments, but never something like this. I, I use that just as a, a term of endearment, so I don't know that. But we do know that Homo naledi walked upright because it's the best represented fossil hominid in the entire record. I mean, we have more Homo naledi than any other species of hominid ever discovered on the continent of Africa, even ones that were discovered 60, 70 years ago, 80 years ago, that continue to be discovered. And so we have bones of all areas of the anatomy. We have partial skeletons. And we can see that they absolutely walk upright. Does this add to the idea that Homo naledi was performing ritual practices? Well, the, the first time we suggested that, we did so because Homo naledi was alone. And we could not see any other way that such an accumulation and abundance of a single species of animals with no no predatory damage, no scavenging damage, no evidence that they were washed in there in any way, could continually and over time get into the system. We could see that they were coming in one after the other. They weren't, it wasn't like a group of them that got in there and were killed all at once or something that some people might suggest. Some people thought that was good evidence. Some archaeologists said it's impossible. Small-brained hominids can't think like that. Um, holding on to the idea that humans are unique. We then found the Lissetti chamber. And the Lissetti chamber had a similar but different situation. There were, again, no animals. But here you had a body in an alcove, literally raised mm. off the floor in an alcove. The whole, the whole body was there. That was a conundrum. But again, it looked very similar to the kind of things, the ways that humans use caves like this or, or catacombs to place their dead. And so... Some people thought that added quite a lot of evidence to the idea. A little Letty and just a head on a shelf. is it's, It is hard to imagine how that occurred without others of her species interacting with her skull. Because there are no body parts there. And you see, if, if she'd crawled in there and died, say that would be kind of your logical way of, of, of her getting there, then... You'd find her body, too. In fact, you wouldn't find these fragile bones of the skull. They always become destroyed. They're paper thin. You would find parts of the arms and the legs, the long bones, which are, are much more uh, rugged and, and would preserve. You would expect to find other pieces than this. Here, we just find this fragmented skull. And it, it does seem to add at least some idea that this, again, may be a case of Homo naledi interacting with its dead, this one after the bones had deteriorated. It's a very provocative thing. We're continuing to explore this idea. Uh, we are working on other areas of this cave that, that I think will enlighten us substantially, perhaps in a more testable way than, than her little skull on a shelf has or, or where we are, are at this moment. And, and I hope that in the relatively near future, will be coming out with, with perhaps more definitive, verifiable evidence around this hypothesis of a non-human animal 
even though they're related to us in some way, we don't know that relationship performing ritualized practices related to death. Because, by the way, if they are, it has profound implications for how humans view both their special place in nature and the origins of those practices. Because Homo Leti's doing this 150 to 200,000 years before we have any evidence that Homo sapiens are doing something like this. So it's very important we get this right, and we're continuing to, to work on that and test that hypothesis. This interview was brought to you by First Rand. For more stories of South African success, visit the Good Hope section at biznews.com. Well, thanks for being with us this evening. We'll be back again, same time, same place tomorrow, and uh, watch out for some of those interviews on the new councils. We are indeed going to be uh, giving you some of the more surprising ones tomorrow night, some of the new mayors who you would never have expected would have actually gotten there. So all of that coming up tomorrow. Until then, though, from our team here at Biz News, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News. <laughs>